Amen. Well, I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. And um, I want to invite you to stand, and uh, Debbie Mason's going to come, and she's going to read this whole chapter um, with us this morning. So let's stand together, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have to say, all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Lord, we come to you now asking for your help. Um, Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts who are humble to receive your word and be fashioned and shaped by your Holy Spirit through it so that we can become more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And allow me as your messenger to be faithful, and Lord, that my words would reflect your heart through this text to your people as well as to those who may be here today or listening online um, who do not know you. May you have your way with us, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. On Friday, June 12th, 1987, then-President Ronald Reagan gave a speech at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, Germany, that would affect modern history in a most dramatic way. Reagan was speaking specifically to the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. Here's what he said. We welcome change and openness 
For we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that will be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Reagan would go on to say, as I looked out a moment ago from the Reichstag, that embodiment of German unity, I notice words crudely spray-painted upon the wall, perhaps by a young Berliner. This wall will fall. Beliefs become reality. Yes, across Europe, this wall will fall, for it cannot withstand faith. It cannot withstand truth. The wall cannot withstand freedom. And the wall came down, and the iron curtain of communism would fall. There would be difficult times ahead, especially for those who had been under the yoke of communism. Little food, a weak economy, hard to find jobs. But in the midst of it all, there was a hope of a new day dawning with new opportunities and new freedoms. Some of you that are here this morning were part of all of that and know what that means. Sadly, the grip of new of a new form of communism is on the rise, isn't it? Not just in places like Russia and China, but even in places like Venezuela, even in Bolivia, and even here in the good old U.S. of A. Well, now as we come to our text, we encounter another wall of sorts that will come down. It is one of the most important walls to come down in the entire history of creation. It is the wall of distinction or separation between the Jew and the Gentiles. That may not seem significant to you, but that's just because you don't understand its significance. And it's all part of God's, Christ's unfolding mission to the end of the earth. See, the book of Acts has given us a vivid picture and foundation for how Christ prepared and commissioned and worked through his apostles in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And along the way, we've seen the spread of Christ's gospel on a macro level, on this big picture level. In Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea, and multitudes of people have heard the word and they've turned to the Lord as believers. They followed Jesus Christ. And our text today is part of a greater section begins in chapter 9, ends in chapter 11, verse 18, where the, the macro emphasis is summarized in verse 34 of our text, where it says, truly, this is Peter speaking now to Cornelius, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. See, the big picture theme is that God shows no partiality and will fully accept those who fear him. But we will deal with some of those things today because it's all part of the story. 
but much of the development and articulation of that theme we will actually leave to next time when we're in chapter 11. Today, however, we want to focus in on Acts 10, and I would like to approach our text from a macro, a micro perspective, I should say, because in this text we have another conversion encounter. And we've had some beautiful conversion encounters so far. I mean, they've been helpful. They've been, they've been, been encounters that have helped us think through what does it mean to follow Jesus. We come face to face again with another one. We first met Simon the sorcerer and quickly realized that his was a counterfeit faith, right? Then we, we, we met the Ethiopian eunuch, an African cabinet member who had come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, and he's reading the book of Isaiah, and God brings about Philip to come by his side and to explain what's going on there, and there we saw a genuine faith. Then we saw Saul the persecutor, the murderer, encounter the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And surprisingly, uh, we found that Saul is God's chosen vessel to reach the Gentile peoples. That's an unlikely faith. And with each conversion encounter, we've been challenged in our own witness. With Simon, the source, where we learned that not all professions of faith are genuine. With the Ethiopian eunuch, we were challenged to always be ready to share the gospel from the scriptures. With the apostle uh, Paul, or Saul as he was then, we realized that Jesus can save the most unlikely person. That God can call the worst of the worst to not only be his children, but to be his chosen instruments for ministry. Now, as we come to our text today, we encounter a man by the name of Cornelius, who will have an encounter with the Apostle Peter, which is all orchestrated by God, and we will be challenged in a different way. And I'll kind of give a a little bit of a way here. We're going to be challenged to not be light with the gospel. And we'll come face to face with the important missional truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Just look down at verse 36, because Peter articulates it when he's explaining the gospel. He says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And this is the heart of the matter, friends. And we know that Jesus is Lord, don't we? we, we we've heard that. We, 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 we preach that. We teach that. But the emphasis here isn't so much, and I don't want to say it's not that he's Lord, but it's that he's Lord of all. He's Lord of both Jew and Gentile alike. Now, just think about the structure of this passage. It's really three sections. A long section, verses 1 through 33, that I'm calling the visions. Uh, There's also the gospel, verses 34 through 43. And then the results, 44 through 48. Those aren't the heading titles, but that's just kind of the basic structure. There are these visions that happen. There's the gospel presented, and then there's the results. And a forewarning, we will be spending the lion's share of our time in verses 1 through 33, because there's a setting of a stage that kind of leads right into the last section of our text. And we'll look briefly at those last two, and then kind of follow up with some hopeful, helpful, and concluding thoughts. So let's jump in now, what I'm calling the weaving of God's providence. 
God is sovereign over all. And God in his sovereignty weaves his providence for his own purposes and glory. And he weaves now his providence in particular in the lives of two people, Cornelius and Peter. And the scenes shift back and forth from one to the other. So let's take each individual uh, and, and notice how God is at work in each of their lives so separately. We're going to begin with God is at work drawing Cornelius to himself. And we're told uh, some things about Cornelius, I think a, a good amount to give us a sense of uh, who he is and, and what he's like. In verses 1 and 2 and verse 22, we're given some, some uh, straight pictures uh, and statements of who he is and what he's like. And we'll kind of summarize all that. First of all, he's a good man. He's a good man. I mean, he's certainly a Gentile man, but he's a good man. And we're told that he's a, he's a successful soldier. He's a centurion of the Italian cohort. A cohort has about 600 soldiers. Therefore, he's a commander of 100. He's a respected citizen, well spoken of uh, by outsiders and the whole Jewish nation. He's a diligent worshiper. He's, we're told he's devout. He fears God with all his household. He is upright and a God-fearing man. That's verse 22. He's a generous neighbor, we're told. He gives alms generously to the people. So Cornelius, we put all that together. Cornelius is an upright, decent, respectable, honorable man. He's the kind of man you would want to have as your neighbor. Or maybe even to be a family friend. But what we need to realize, and we'll develop this some more a little bit later, is that Cornelius, although he's a good man, is an unsaved man. Now friends, for many Christians, we have a hard time with this category of unbeliever. Depending on what your background is and what kind of churches you've grown up in, or maybe how you have been educated and taught in the church. Because we have in our minds that since believers are living in darkness and they're under the control of the devil, that they're all wicked and terrible people, that they're all evil rapists and swindlers and revilers and murderers. And so you do all you can to avoid them. You look around your neighborhood and you're like, well, they're not a believer. Got to stay away from them. I know he's something. Right. And that guy over there, he plays his music loud. I know there's some evil thing happening there, right? We, we, we're, we, we somehow we've trained ourselves to think that, that unbelievers are all of that. I mean, they might even be Dodgers fans for a crying out loud. And when you meet an unbeliever who's like Cornelius, you really don't know what to do. He or she is hardworking, successful, respectable, religious, and generous. They are the perfect co-worker. They want to see you succeed in your job. They'll help you when you ask. They're concerned about your family. They're generally caring about their other co-workers. Or they're the perfect neighbor who cuts your grass for you, who brings in the trash and recycle bins when you've left them out. They feed your dog or cat when you're away. They watch out for suspicious people roaming around your house. And they'll let you know when you've left your garage door open. They're good neighbors. They're good co-workers. They're unbelievers. You see, we've been told to live in our Christian bubble, 
And as you're able, avoid contact with unbelievers. We've been told to avoid the appearance of evil. We've been told to not associate ourselves with unbelievers. We've been told that there'll be a bad influence on you, especially with your kids. And we've been told that the world is looking to squeeze you into its mold. And so we can have an attitude that says something like, I can be nice, I can be kind, I can be friendly, but I'm not going to look to spend time with them. Unless, of course, it's for evangelistic purposes. And friends, we have a category in our thinking for the wicked, evil, axe-wielding hater of God. But do we have a category for the moral, likable, honorable unbeliever. And friends, we should. On one hand, we can be ultra-conservative, willing to tolerate them, but ultimately not wanting to do much with them. On the other hand, we can be rather liberal, ultimately viewing their honorable, respectable, and generous lives in such a way that we become soft with the gospel. We might be tempted to embrace the American gospel, which says, if you're a good person in this life, then surely God will accept you into heaven. And as such, we'll withhold the gospel. And friends, we need to think about this. We might come away from meeting with a man or woman like Cornelius and say, they are almost there. Their behavior is better than many Christians I know. I really don't think that they will need to hear the gospel because they're already living good lives and surely God wouldn't reject such an outstanding individual. We might even read Acts chapter 10 verse 35 and be tempted to believe that Cornelius is a child of God because this is what it says in every nation. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You might say, well, isn't that what it says about Cornelius? He fears God? If you have some respect for God, then you're right with God. And you'll be saved. That's the kind of thinking. That's where we go. But friends, what the scriptures teach us is that although Cornelius is a good man, he is also still a sinful man. He's a good man. He's a sinful man. Let's look at some proof now from the context here of the fact that this is true. How can we be certain that Cornelius is an unbeliever? Well, we look at what's right here. Acts chapter 11, verse 30, 13 through 14. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house. This is talking about Cornelius. Send to Joppa to bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be what? Saved. And all your household. So he was a good man who needed Peter to come and declare a message so that he could be saved. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter is preaching Christ to Cornelius, we'll see this a little later, and says that you don't receive the forgiveness of sins except by believing in his name, in Christ's name. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So this is Pentecost. 
And when the, the apostles go out and the disciples go out and they start proclaiming the gospel in known languages, we're told it's the devout men that are responding, that are listening. And of course, those devout men are Jews from Jerusalem. They're also Hellenist Jews, Jews from the Mediterranean area. And what do these devout men say to Peter when he's done proclaiming the gospel? Verse 37 of chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, notice Peter doesn't say, well, since you're all devout Jews, you really don't have to do anything. Because all you need to do is just keep doing those devout things. Keep going on your pilgrimage to the temple. Keep worshiping in the synagogue. Keep doing your good deeds. Just keep being good, respectable, religious, and devout men. No, that's not what Peter says. What does he say in verse 37? Repent and be baptized. Friends, good people are sinful people who need to repent and be baptized. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Cornelius is a Gentile who does not have life, but now according to Christ's mission and with the example of Cornelius, the Gentiles who do not have life are granted repentance that will lead to life. So friends, we need to see this. You may have unbelievers around you who are good, moral, upright, religious people. They might even have the same political perspective that you have. But they're sinful. And they need the gospel. But not only is he a good man... And a sinful man. He's also a seeking man. We might put it this way, that God has been at work in Cornelius' heart so that he has been seeking God in prayer. God has awakened Cornelius' heart to seek the truth. See, God has been at work. He's not saved. But God is drawing Cornelius to himself. Some of you know exactly what this is like especially those of you who are saved at a, at a, a later age in life, you, you can recognize how God was orchestrating the, his providence and drawing you to himself out of where you were and to him. And this is reinforced by the angelic vision where we read, this is verse 4, chapter 10, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now remember, he wasn't a believer. He respected the God of Israel, likely as a Gentile, and as a Gentile probably growing up in, in Rome or some other Hellenistic location. He had different ideas and religions and philosophies, but as he came into the Israelite territories, he began to encounter the Jewish religion. He began to embrace that as his own. And so he's praying, he's giving alms, he's seeking, but he's not yet a follower of Christ. Now following that revelation, the angel gives Cornelius instructions. Go 
Find a man by the name of Simon who's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa and have him come to you. And so he did. He sends his representatives, three of them, they go and they ultimately bring Peter to him. See, Cornelius prays, but he doesn't know the truth yet. And so the angel instructs Cornelius to follow um, specific guidelines so that he can hear the truth from Simon. So that's Cornelius. God is at work drawing him to himself. Secondly, God is at work now equipping Peter for ministry. So God is at work in Cornelius' life, right? There's this, this strand of providence that's weaving through the story, and it's cor- what's happening in Cornelius' life. There's another strand that's happening over here, and it's Peter. What is God doing with Peter? We read in verse 9, the next day, as they were on their journey, as these men are coming to, to approach the city and to find Peter, Peter went to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And what we're going to find here, what we're going to read here, is a vision, a contemplation, and a revelation. First of all, a vision, verses 9 through 16. Here's what we find. In the sixth hour when Peter goes to pray, that's noon. And he's hungry and eager to eat. So he goes to pray, but he's hungry. You ever had that experience? You know, you're praying, and you're like, oh, I could really have some more of that coffee right now, or whatever it might be, right? Is it any surprise? I mean, it's, it's noon. The food is being prepared, we're told, and Peter's hunger juices are in heightened anticipation, kind of like maybe what's going to happen today when you go home and Dad starts to, to put the chicken on the grill and getting ready to watch the Super Bowl or whatever it might be. You can smell lunch out there. Or maybe Thanksgiving when you walk into Grandma's house and you can take it all in. And you're like, oh, man, bypass the hors d'oeuvres. Or maybe for some of you, it's more like going to in and out getting combo number one, a double-double with cheese, extra crispy fries, and a chocolate shake. You can smell it. This is what's going on. He, he's, he's praying, but he's, he's smelling. And, and God puts him into a trance where he sees a vision. And what's the vision about? It's about food. You think God has Peter's attention right now. You see, it's a vision of a sheet descending from heaven full of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Now, some of those were approved animals, and some of those were animals that they were forbidden to eat. So it included livestock, but also livestock that was forbidden. Things like pigs and lobsters and seagulls and camels and hares. You want to see the comparison? Look at Leviticus chapter 11. It's all laid out there for you. Now, honestly, when I read this passage, the thing that kind of, that, that kind of surprises me and kind of makes me go, ooh, is the whole reptile thing. I, that's just not, I don't know. That's, you don't usually go to, down to Elio's and say, give me snake, you know, or I, I don't know. Just, it's just weird, right? It's, it's there, right? But it's, it's there. And the voice of God, God instructs Peter. And notice what he says. He says, rise, kill, and eat. This is the hunter's life verse, right? Rise, kill, and eat. But Peter, true to his Jewish convictions, responds by saying, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. 
Now, in responding to the voice of God this way, hear this, Peter believes that he is being obedient to God. Because for a Jew to eat the common and unclean creatures would be a violation of the law, God's instructions. And the two statements by no means, or I have never underscore and emphasized Peter's rejection, justified rejection. But the vision repeats three times and is taken up to heaven. Now, Peter, of all people, should be aware of God's use of a threefold repetition. Peter denies Jesus how many times? Three times. Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me? How many times? Three times. Now Jesus says to Peter, Rise, kill, and eat. What God has made clean, do not call common. And he's saying it three times. God is looking to drive something home into Peter's thoughts and into his very being. But what is it that God is seeking to tell Peter? Is it just about food? Now notice now the contemplation. Peter doesn't understand the significance of what he's just seen. The sheet coming down with all sorts of different animals. God saying, rise, kill, and eat. This doesn't make any sense. He doesn't understand the implications of what God means by those words. And so while the story continues to unfold, with the men coming from the house of Cornelius, we're told, we're given two windows really into what's going on in Peter's heart, aren't we? Two words. Verse 17, he's perplexed. Verse 19, he's pondering. Perplexed. Here, Peter is, is just at a loss as to the meaning of the vision and what it might be. His mind is trying to make sense of it, but he, he just can't figure out what it is when Cornelius' men show up. And then while he's interacting with them, he's still pondering, right? These are, you know what it's like. You can be doing the, the duty, you can be doing the thing, but your, your mind is still racing about what's going on. So he's perplexed. And he's pondering, he's puzzled, but he's obedient, he's hospitable, he's willing to follow the instructions the Spirit gives him to rise and go down and accompany these men without hesitation, for I have sent them. And without hesitation, go, okay, I'm going to do it, but I still don't know exactly what's going on. That's the contemplation. Now in verse 24 through 33, we have the revelation. By the time Peter has made the journey to Joppa, to the home, uh, sorry, not to, to Joppa, but to Caesarea, to the home of Cornelius, he has figured out what it is that God is teaching him. See, after telling Cornelius to stand up because I am just a man, Cornelius, again, coming from a different world, thinking he's a greater person, he certainly is an apostle, but he is certainly not worthy of being worshipped. He speaks to Cornelius and the many people gathered in his home saying, notice what he says, verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. So what Peter now understands in this vision 
with the, the common and the unclean animals and the command to rise, kill, and eat, he realizes that it was an object lesson pointing to the fact that the Gentiles are no longer to be considered as common or unclean. Now, the Jews had taught that open association with Gentiles was prohibited because of fear that the Gentiles are unclean. I mean, if you go into their home, certainly they're going to have some meat or they're going to have some things that they will have touched or you might rub up against that will cause you now to be ceremonially unclean, to violate the law. So rather than even that be a possibility, we just will not associate with you. But now God was bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together. The Old Testament dietary restrictions had come to an end. The wall between Jews and Gentiles is being torn down and the new movement of God was bringing Jews and Gentiles together in the church. And so, although Peter, as a Jew, shouldn't be associating or visiting with Cornelius or any of his friends because they're Gentiles, God has spoken and removed the wall of separation that divided them. There's a new day forward now for the Gentiles, for the gospel, for the church. And so Cornelius tells the story about his vision and how the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Do you see how God is at work through his providence, orchestrating the events in the lives of both Cornelius and in the life of Peter. And in all that orchestration, he's telling, I should say he's tilling and guiding the heart of Cornelius to be ready to hear the gospel. And likewise, God is seeking to strip Peter of his Jewish separatist convictions so that he can be free to boldly proclaim the gospel in a Gentile context. My friends, this is powerful. And this is significant in the life and the history of the church. So there's three things just I want to draw out of, of this so far. I want us to see, first of all, that Christ is sovereign over all. And I want to read from Kent Hughes, who captures this really well. He says, the four corners of the sheet in the vision correspond to the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. The sheet's contents indicate the swarming millions that populate the earth. Cornelius, all his soldiers, all his servants, all the Roman people, all the other nations on the face of the earth, all mankind were bound up together in one loathsome bundle. And Peter was standing above them, surveying them all and spitting out revulsion and rejection. But Christ is sovereign over all. Secondly, with that in mind, Peter needed to be refined. In this vision, Peter comes face to face with his coldness and his callousness toward the millions of people outside of Judaism who were spiritually blind. And his response of by no means must change to by all means. He must no longer look down on the Gentiles as common and unclean. He must embrace them as those for whom Christ died. You see, God is at work in the heart of Peter, 
shaping him and changing him and conforming him so that he can continue in his ministry toward the Gentiles. So Christ is sovereign over all. Peter needed to be refined. Number three, the gospel is for everyone. No matter their language, color, tribe, or nation, no matter their political persuasion, their gender identity, their religious beliefs, their economic status, or sexual orientation, the gospel goes out from God's faithful witnesses to do a work in sinful hearts already being prepared by God. And this is reinforced by what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Here's what it says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. These are the very groups from which God draws people to himself. You get that? This is the gospel at work. And friends, in the same way that God needed to work on Peter's heart, he also then works on our hearts, doesn't he? To rid them of any prejudice that we may have. You see, what we do is we bundle up whole nations and throw them into the unclean sheep. And based on your background and history, you might throw the nations of Germany or Japan or Russia or China or whatever it might be into the sheet and say, ah, I'm clean. You do that? When 9-11 hit, did you do that? With the Olympics going on right now, are you doing that? With the conflict in Ukraine and, and Russia, are you doing that? We bundle up whole races and throw them into the unclean sheet. Africans, they're of little value. The Middle Easterners, they're evil monsters following jihad. Asians, they're buying up everything. Hispanics, they're invading our country. White Europeans, they're guilty of all our oppression. Each one of those is just throwing a group of people into this sheet and saying, unclean, unclean. We bundle up political groups and throw them into the unclean sheet, the lying and conniving Democrats, right? the greedy and restrictive Republicans, the weak and undermining libertarians, the racist and Marxist BLM advocates, the wicked LGBT crowd, we throw them in the sheet and we say, unclean, unclean. We bundle up churches and denominations and throw them into the unclean sheet. Arminians, they reject God's sovereignty. Hyper-Calvinists, they're cold and uncaring. Charismatics, they don't care about God's word. Independent fundamentalists, the modern-day Pharisees. Liberal Methodists, why even call yourself Christians? Catholics, you embrace a distorted and corrupted gospel. See, we, we throw them all into this sheet and say, unclean, unclean. But hear this, friends. These are all the groups from which God draws people to himself. 
I realize life happens. Bad things happen. Nations fight against nations. But when it comes down to it, we're all people who will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day. And the gospel is for all of them. And friends, God comes to us today to slap us silly and to wake us up to how we all struggle with the sin of partiality. How we all struggle with the sin of partiality. And our reluctance to believe that individuals in these groups of people could be the objects of God's affection. Is there in you a thought or a feeling that says this group of people do not deserve God's affection because of the horrible things that they have done? You ever had that thought? Do you ever find yourself so upset with a group of people that you say in your heart, they can all just go to hell? No, notice I said, you say in your heart, they can all just go to hell. But are you any more worthy? Are you any better? Or are you just full of pride and arrogance, blind to your own prejudices? Friends, the weaving of God's providence in Cornelius and Peter now leads to a declaration of God's grace that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So not only is Jesus sovereign over all, he's Lord of all. And in order for Jesus to be Lord, he must be sovereign. So Peter, having learned his lesson and standing in the home of Cornelius, is is now there, opening his mouth and preaching the gospel. And what we find, first of all, is the heart of the gospel proclaimed. He says, God shows no partiality. Now, friends, hear this. That, that is a shock to the context and the culture of that day. It's no small thing for that to be said. He's saying that anyone from any and every nation who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In other words, anyone who hears the word of the Lord, the gospel of peace, and truly repents and believes is welcome into the family of God. As such, Jesus is Lord of all, to the Jew and to the Gentile alike. And friends, it's worth mentioning that regardless of how people around the world respond to Jesus, he's still Lord of all. To be Lord of all doesn't mean that everyone recognizes you as Lord. He's still Lord. That doesn't change. It doesn't change because of people's language and culture or sexual orientation or political party or, or any other distinction mankind embraces. No, he is Lord of all regardless of who they are and where they live. And they are responsible to listen to the gospel and submit to his lordship. Now, the distinction here is that Jesus, the Messiah, is not limited to being Israel's Messiah. No, he is everyone's true Messiah. He is not just a regional God. He is Lord of all. The heart of the gospel, the facts of the gospel, Peter walks through them, basically sharing the gospel to Cornelius and his friends, Here's what we find. He talks about his baptism, right? 
where God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. He talks about his ministry, those three years of doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And all of that was to authenticate that God was with him, this passage says. And we are witnesses of what he did, which includes the miracles, his compassion, as well as his teaching, as well as his preaching. So all of that's happening. He's just reiterating all of those things that are all part of the facts of the gospel. And then also of his passion, that he was crucified, that he was buried, that he, he was raised the third day, and that he was witnessed. He was made to appear, it says here. We ate and drank with him, he says. So it just wasn't just we saw him. We interacted with him. We talked with him. We had a meal with him. Those are the facts of the gospel. And then there's the mission for the gospel. We've been commanded to preach, Peter says, and testify to the people that Jesus is judge. Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So he's going to be the judge. He's the judge now. He will be the judge ultimately. Jesus is also the justifier. Jesus is the one, the prophets, that's the scriptures, promised would bring forgiveness through his suffering. He would pay. He would redeem. He's the justifier. He's the judge. And friends, God's providence is at work bringing the gospel of peace so that people will believe in Jesus, the Messiah, and be forgiven of their sins. Now, Uh, It's not just the Jews that are the object of God's affection. It's all people. Remember, Gentile simply means anyone who's not a Jew. And so Peter is not just kind of giving this big picture thing. He's also saying to Cornelius, look, you too can receive the forgiveness of sins. If you will repent and believe in Jesus, if you embrace Jesus what Jesus has done on your behalf in paying for your sins on the cross, he's saying to Cornelius and his friends, you too are welcome to receive him as Lord and Savior. And of course, friends, that statement is still true today. If you're here, you might be a good person. You might be religious. But are you saved? You too can receive Jesus Christ And be forgiven. Third, we have the evidence of new life. Jesus here is the Savior of all who believe. And notice I didn't say Jesus is the Savior of all. He's the Lord of all. He's sovereign over all. But he's the Savior of all who believe. And notice the four responses Luke gives us. First of all, they heard the word. They believed. That's, that's an expression that's been used already a number of times in the book of Acts to say they listened and they believed. And the apostle Paul will later write to the Roman church saying, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Can you imagine Cornelius and his friends sitting there listening to the gospel and just rejoicing over the fact that they have been the recipient of God's kindness and grace to take them from religious fuzzy land to spiritual clarity land in the gospel. 
God was drawing Cornelius, but he needed to send a preacher with the gospel so that he could be saved. They heard the word. Secondly, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The evidence of their conversion was the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the indwelling presence of the Spirit, which every true believer receives at conversion. And this is the third installment of the Holy Spirit. If you've been with us through Acts, you remember what we talked about last week in particular. But first of all, the Holy Spirit came on the people at Pentecost. The second time is when after Philip went to Samaria and he was preaching the gospel there and there was great rejoicing, but they waited for the apostles, in particular Peter, to come to Samaria. When he was there, they laid hands on the people and the spirit now descended on them. This was an authenticating function for the church. And now as Peter is interacting with this Gentile, the Holy Spirit descends once again. And Peter is there as this one who holds the keys, authenticating the the, the unity of the church, because it is now Jews and Gentiles, but also authenticating the message of the gospel. And the Spirit now descends into the hearts of these people. The church is not limited to Israel, but it is now going out to the end of the earth. Third, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Again, notice what he says, verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Christ. Again and again, we see that true conversion bears fruit in water baptism. It was true in the early church, and it is still true today. You proclaim the truth of your conversion to others by going through the waters of baptism publicly. Finally, they were fellowshipping with one another for some days. Right verse, right there at the, this last part of verse 48. Then they asked him to remain for some days. It's so a wonderful statement, isn't it? I mean, those who were once now divided by this wall are saying, Peter, can you, can you hang around here for a bit? <laughs> To be sure, they had a lot of questions. And to be sure, Peter gave a lot of answers and directed them more about Jesus and what he had done, how the Old Testament proclaims and is fulfilled in Jesus, and what they are to do as followers of Christ. Two groups of people, once divided, now united because of Christ. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Now, as we just bring it to a close, I got four things. Don't panic. But these are four things. I'll be quick. But I think they're needed to be said. Number one, good people need the gospel. You've heard me say that. Unfortunately, much of the church has adopted a cultural American gospel, which has often been described as moral therapeutic Deism. You might want to go online and look and see what that is. So let me give you some statements that would reveal that, that the gospel of moral therapeutic de- deism. A God exists. This is someone making a statement. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Or God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. 
The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. There's nothing about penal substitution or Christ's sacrificial death on the cross there. It's about living a moral life, a good life, just like People all around want to live moral and good lives. And certainly God will receive you into heaven. That is the American gospel, friends. And many people in the church today might articulate a biblical gospel, but they live out an American gospel. See, the moral therapeutic deism has distorted an understanding of sin. Man's sinfulness is not measured by the kind of sin that he or she commits. So if if you murder a bunch of people, that doesn't make you any worse off than someone who commits a lie. Why? Because in God's eyes, a sin is a sin. And quite frankly, it's not the fact that you have committed sins that's really the issue. It's the fact that you are full of sin. It's the doctrine of man's depravity. Even good people do good things, and in doing those good things, are sinful. You know, that's a hard one to figure out. I understand that. Now, God doesn't say there is no hope for the racist, the sex offender, the murderer, the thief, or the swindler. No, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, this, this moral therapeutic deism doesn't really have a category for someone like a Hitler being reborn or some serial killer coming to faith in Christ. No, that person doesn't deserve it. Well, we have scripture here that says there's a leader of a movement that is killing people who is now going to take the gospel to the end of the earth. And his name is Saul, whose name would be Paul. That doesn't register for most people. Good people who do good things and live good lives are still in need of the radical change and forgiveness that can only come through the gospel. So friends, your good friends, your good neighbors, your good co-worker, they still need Christ. Number two, God's people constantly need refining. That's you and that's me. We have not arrived in the clarity of our theology, in the, in the excellence of our character. We continually, constantly need refining. We've all brought beliefs and practices into our Christian walk that we may assume are biblical, but we find are not. They might even be acceptable in the context of the church, but they're not. I mean, take the subject of racism, for example. You might have a church somewhere in the country full of people who just don't think it's really that bad to be racist. That's just the way we've always done it. It's just our attitude. It's been there. It's been part of what's going on. And God comes along and shows them from Scripture that it's sinful. And they're like, oh, wait a second. 
Is there something like that going on in you where where you might assume that, that you have a habit or you have a thinking or you have a practice that you think is perfectly fine? But God comes and exposes it through his word. See, God is always refining us, isn't he? We, we, we haven't arrived. We, we are still broken and in need of correction and counsel from God. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And his workmanship doesn't stop at conversion. It continues on. In sanctification, he's constantly at work refining his children. Third, well, certainly he was doing that with Peter, right? Third, God's global mission should change us. It should change how we view the world. Friends, the world is in bondage to the enemy and needing rescue from the Savior. What you might see as political is really a response of living under the control of the devil. What these people need is the gospel. And so we view the world differently, not as you know, kind of negative and weird and all that. We say, you know, of course they're going to behave that way. Why? Because they don't know Christ. It changes how we view and how we interact with others. We're not shocked by different cultures and values or behaviors. We might disagree with them. They may not be biblical, but we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. So we don't just somehow avoid. But we, we're strong in our faith so that we're not tainted by. And we find common ground with others in their life and their marriages and their children, their hobbies, their interests and their passions. I remember talking with someone who was a missionary in Turkey a number of years ago. This was right after uh, 9-11. And he said, look, he said, we, we've had to leave our church because people were coming as a mob and they were throwing stuff at the, at the church and stuff like that. And there were people after that that came up to us that are all Muslims who are our neighbors and our friends. And they said, look, that is not us. We're just people who want to live our lives, love our wives, see our children grow up, do a decent work in our community, and live in peace. And yet we kind of backfill all this to shape our view of certain people. No, friends, global mission should change us. It should change also how we pray. Last, God's church should encourage us. Why? The answer to the never-ending struggle that has plagued the world through the centuries, racism, classism, inequality, worth, is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that sounds like tripe to the world. I totally get it. It's foolishness to the world. But we know it to be true. It is the gospel that breaks down the wall of these divisions and allows all people to live and worship together in unity, male or female, rich or poor, black, brown or white, boss or employee, free or in prison. They can all come together in unity through the gospel. Why? Because Jesus is Lord of all. Lord, help us. Help us to be in awe of the incredible event 
that has taken place in this text that has fashioned and shaped the world ever since. Lord, also allow it to challenge our own hearts to root out any kind of partiality, any kind of discrimination that may be in our hearts for whatever reason, not necessarily racial, but it can be class. It can be so many other things, Lord. And help us, Lord, to see it for what it is and to confess it and to repent of it. But, Lord, to see that in your gospel is the gathering of your people from all tribes, nations, and tongues to be your church, singing praises singing uh, words of declaration that you are worthy to glorify your name. Help us, Lord, to be that kind of people, willing to be changed, glorifying you, and impacting this world. We ask in your name. Amen.